Well, if you're out working and you begin to have chest pains, and these chest pains intensify and they're, they're becoming greater, there's no doubt about where you're going. You're fixing to head to the ER, and you're going to get there in short order if, if these chest pains are getting worse and worse. When you begin to have a medical emergency, it's pretty clear where you need to go. You, you need to go to the hospital. But what about when you have a heart problem, but not that kind of heart problem? What about when you have the kind of challenges and difficulties of a heart that aches? Of a heart that deep down you recognize things are not right. An aching, a longing for, for some kind of healing, for some kind of help. Where do you go for that kind of heart problem? Well, this morning, that's exactly what we're going to talk about as we uh, look in Isaiah chapter 7. The last few weeks, we've been working through uh, the book of Isaiah, for, for the next few weeks, as we, as we look toward Christmas, we're going to focus in on prophecies about Jesus' birth in the book of Isaiah, as well as his ministry. And as we look at chapter 7 together, we're going to see how God saves us and helps us. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is raisin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to Refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. As we look at these verses, we see that God sent his son to save. 
We see that God sent His Son to save. Now, this is a prophecy about that, but, but we'll look forward and see the realization and the fulfillment of that. God sent His Son to save. In verse 1, we see that Assyria was the dominant empire. It was a looming threat to the surrounding nations. Now, Israel, if you'll remember, uh, King David... Uh, had a son named Solomon. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. The kingdom broke up. Israel broke into two nations uh, with, with King Rehoboam. And so you had a, a northern kingdom, which was the ten northern tribes. This uh, was called the nation of Israel. In this passage, it's called Ephraim at times after one of the tribes. And the southern tribes, the two southern tribes, were called Judah. And so you've got this alliance between Syria, which was also to Judah's north, between Syria and the northern kingdom, Israel or Ephraim, Syria in this passage is also called Aram. So there's a lot of names to keep up with here. But basically what you need to know is that there was an Israeli-Syrian alliance. And they had asked Judah's king, King Ahaz, to join in this alliance. This alliance was for the purpose of defending themselves against this looming Assyrian threat, which was to the north and to the west. And so... Uh, Israel and Syria said to King Ahaz and Judah, work with us, team up with us, and we'll stand against Assyria. And King Ahaz said, look, I'm not going to be a part of that. And so in verse 1, we kind of get a summary of what happened. And then in verses 2 through 9, we get a more detailed understanding of, of how it all played out. This event occurs in 735 B.C. B.C. It was shortly after Ahaz had become the king of Judah, so he was a young king. Looking in verse 2, some sort of intelligence revealed to King Ahaz that the uh, troops from Syria or Aram were beginning to uh, uh, come come down. And, And so there's this sense in which intelligence reports show them that the troops are amassing and there's trouble at hand. Now, if you notice in verse 2, when Isaiah addresses uh, King Ahaz, he calls him the house of David. That's kind of strange. Usually in the Old Testament, when they're addressing a king, they just say the king's name. But here, the point is that what is happening here with Ahaz has far-reaching consequences. This is not just about Ahaz, but this is about the house of David. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, God promised David that he would have a descendant on the throne eternally. So the decisions that King Ahaz are making, being in the line of David, are going to affect whether or not a Davidic descendant or a descendant of David, pardon me, remains on the throne in Judah. In verse 3, uh, God told Isaiah to take his son, uh, whose name means a remnant will return to one of the city's water supplies to meet King Ahaz. This is probably what was happening. King Ahaz is fearing this attack from Syria and Israel. And so he's trying to to secure a water supply into the city to make sure that if this attack happens, they'll still have water. And so we get the picture that the king is stressed and, and troubled. And so God says to Isaiah, take your son whose name means a remnant shall return. There's kind of a hint of hope there, but also a sense of of looming destruction, a sense of the fact that judgment was coming. Take him with you, and you two go to see the king. Verse 4, we see the king is frantic. He's, He's troubled. What was God's message to the king, to King Ahaz? What was his message? Be calm. Quit, quit freaking out. Things are going to be okay. That's what God is saying to him. Don't be scared. And he says of these two smoldering sticks, he said, imagine a couple of logs that you've pulled out of the fire and they just lay there and smolder until they go out. 
That's what these two kings are. You're scared of the king of Israel? You're scared of the king of Syria? They're just smoldering logs. They're going to be snuffed out. There's nothing to be scared of. Verses 5 and 6, we see that, that Israel and Syria, or Aram and Ephraim, however you want to say it, had a plan to attack Judah, overwhelm Judah, and then replace King Ahaz, to, to put a new king in, a king who would ally with them and who would be a part of this alliance against the nation of Assyria. In verse 7, God gives his verdict on whether or not the king of Israel and the king of Syria would be successful in their attack on Judah. And this is what he says, it won't happen. It's not going to occur. There is nothing to fear. Now, some of you are too young to remember this, but do you remember in 1999, as the days of 1999 came to a close, what was everyone thinking about? Y2K, oh no, it's going to be the end of the world, right? It's something about, like, the com- a lot of computer programs didn't have four digits for the date, so like 1926 would have been just 26, and 2026 would have... St- and, and so this potentially was going to cause havoc all over the world, com- just devastation and the end of the world, and prepare your food for Y2K. Do you remember all that crazy stuff? It didn't happen. And that's exactly what God is saying here about these two kings. It isn't going to happen. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. In fact, he says in 65 years, Israel will be gone, completely gone. In fact, Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722, some 13 years later. And during that time period, they began to displace Uh, The people of Israel, they carried them off into captivity, they killed them, and then they began to repopulate with foreign people so that by 670 B.C., the nation of Israel was was completely gone. There was no nation of Israel. The northern tribes were gone. So he says in verse 9, and this is a warning to King Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. You won't stand at all. This is Ahaz's chance to trust God. But if he doesn't, God's word is clear. He's going to be out of chances. You see, it's like this. If he hears God call him to trust and to be a man of faith, but instead of trusting God and resting in God, he says, you know what? I'm going to go my own way. What happens when we do that is our hearts become hard. And after a period of time, we can keep saying no to God and we can keep saying no to God. And what happens is this, our hearts become so hard that we can't respond to God anymore. And that's exactly where King Ahaz is at. He's at a crossroads. He can respond to God or he can reject God. But if he does reject God this time, it'll be the last time. It'll be his last opportunity. So he must trust God. God has assured him that that he'll be okay, that the nation of Judah will be okay, that Ephraim... It's not an issue that Aram is no problem. It leaves us wondering, how is Ahaz going to respond? Is he going to trust God? Is he going to step out in faith and say, okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say. Is, is that what he's going to do? This is like being in the midst of a, a basketball game. It's the last quarter. Time is almost up on the clock. There's just a couple of points separating you. The coach calls a timeout. Your team's got the ball, and he says to you, You guys have got to come through. It's now or it's never. It's now or it's never. And that's exactly what the prophet is saying to King Ahaz. It's now or never. You're going to have to trust me or it's going to be your last chance. Your last chance. 
In verse 11, God gives Ahaz an opportunity to trust. In fact, he's trying to bolster faith in Ahaz. He's, he's doing everything to, to encourage Ahaz to trust. What does God offer? He says to Ahaz, you ask me for a sign. I'll give you a sign that's as high as the heavens or the, in the depths of the deep. Uh, the, uh, to, to his lowest shield, which was the place of the dead. So he's saying, you can ask me for any kind of sign, and I will give it to you to, to help you trust me, to help you believe. And so, what does Ahaz do? Well, Ahaz, you can see, acts like he's really holy. In verse 12, he, he says, oh, I could never ask for a sign from God. Listen, that was all a game. It was all a game. Why? Because in his heart, he had already made the decision that he was not going to trust God, that he was going to find someone else to align, to align with someone else to trust. He wasn't going to trust God. So, so he plays this game of holiness and righteousness. Oh, I could never ask God for a test. Ahaz's unbelief will lead ultimately to the unraveling of the descendants of David sitting on the throne. It would cost the entire nation, not just himself, as your sin and my sin often does. It never stays just with us. It always has a way of of affecting all the people around us, the people that we love, the people we care about. And here it would affect not just him, it would affect the entire kingdom, the entire nation. In verse 13, Isaiah rebukes not just Ahaz, but if you'll notice in Isaiah uh, 7.13, he rebukes the entire house of David. Why? He's rebuking the whole nation of Judah because the people had been unfaithful to him. They had not trusted him because of their rebellion. Now, if you look back in verse 10, when Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, he, he says to Ahaz directly, your God. But now if you notice in verse 13, the way that Isaiah addresses Ahaz has changed. Now, in verse 13... Isaiah calls God, my God. And what we see here is that Ahaz had identified himself clearly, not as a believer, but as an unbeliever. And now Isaiah no longer said to him when he was speaking of God, your God. Now when Isaiah spoke of God to Ahaz, he called him my God because there was the clear distinction. Ahaz had proven himself an unbeliever. You know, a few weeks back, we were all celebrating Halloween, dressing up and different kinds of costumes. Some person would be this character or that character. But the next day, after Halloween's over, well, the costume comes off, doesn't it? It's gone, and you're just back to being who you are, going to your job like you always do. And here we see Ahaz. He had a costume on. His costume was one of holiness, he, he was trying to pretend like he was a follower of God. It, it, was, it, was, it was a game. But here, suddenly, we see that the costume, it's gone. It, it, it fell off. It, it no longer remained. And what it says to you and to me is this. We can't play faith forever. Eventually, the truth catches up with us. Eventually, our lives bear out whether it's real or whether it's not. If we want to know what Ahaz did, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 16 and look in verse 7. I'll read it. So Ahaz sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son, 
march up and save me from the grasp of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are rising up against me? What did Ahaz do at this critical juncture where he could have trusted God? He went over and got Kim Jong-un and said, hey, let's be friends. He, he got the, the leader of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, a wicked and terrible ruler, and said, let's be friends. And what Tiglath-Pileser became or what Assyria became to King Ahaz, to Judah, was an artificial savior. It was an artificial savior. They thought that they could have security and well-being because of their alliance with this wicked king. But it never, ever works like that. And it would not work that way for Judah now in verse 14, here's the highlight verse, the verse that we're all so familiar with as we think about Christmas. In verse 14, Isaiah tells Ahaz that God is going to give him a sign whether he wants a sign or not. But this sign that God is going to give for Ahaz wouldn't be a sign of God's grace and mercy. Instead, it would be a sign of God's coming judgment against his house, against his kingship. The kings in the line of David over and over and over again had proven to be unfaithful. They had proven to be unfaithful. And we see in verse 14 that God would replace these kings with one who would prove faithful. He would send his son, Jesus, who indeed would come from the line of David, who would be a descendant of David. This boy would be born of a virgin. Now, the word here for virgin means a young woman of marriageable age. But in the uh, Judean culture, that would have been understood to, to be a virgin. So, so this young woman is going to bear a child. Now notice that the mother is naming him. Here it's as if the father's not even in the picture, not mentioned at all. And I think we get a clue as to why the father is never mentioned. Because the boy's name is going to be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So if this boy is going to come and, and fulfill the, the richness of his name that God is going to be with us. His dad is going to be no earthly dad. His dad is going to be something more, something greater. And of course, as Isaiah said this, there was a lot of mystery. They didn't understand all that God was saying and doing, but there was anticipation. Who is this one who's going to come in the line of David and rule? Who, who is it? This is the questions that they would have been asking. Now let's fast forward 700 years, a little over 700 years, and we're going to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and look in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
What we see is that some 700 years later, this prophecy that Isaiah made was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And Jesus would be the perfect, sinless Savior. He would come to this earth as a tiny baby, and he would live a life of perfection. He would never sin. And ultimately, he would be nailed to a cross. And what this meant... This meant that a God who is pure and clean and holy and who can't accept our filthiness, who can't accept our sinful hearts, it meant that that God, the one true God, could receive us. He took his wrath towards sin, his righteous wrath towards sin, and he put it upon his own son. And Jesus died because of your sin, because of my sin. He made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be cleansed, for us to have eternal life, to become one of his children, to be adopted. What incredible news. We see it in verse 21. He came to save his people from their sins. Jesus was buried. He didn't stay in the grave. He came back to life. And he makes a way for us to become a child of God. What an incredible gift this Christmas. What a wonderful and beautiful gift. Now, often in biblical prophecy, there's a, there's a fulfillment that happens in the near term when, when the prophet is alive and those he's speaking to is alive. And then often there's a fulfillment long term. This isn't always the case, but it's the case with a lot of prophecies. And here we see that there was a sense in which there was going to be a fulfillment of this prophecy years into the future, some 700 years. But also there's at some point a a fulfillment of this prophecy within the the lifetime of King Ahaz. If you look in verses 15 and 16, we get a sense of what fulfillment of that prophecy looks like. We see that a a boy would be born to a young woman, to to a virgin, a woman who hadn't yet married, would marry and, and bear a child. And before this boy would grow up and be old enough to know the difference between right and wrong or have moral agency, these two nations, these smoldering sticks, if you will, would be gone. They wouldn't be a threat. In fact, three years later, 732, Syria fell to the nation of Assyria. And in 722, Assyria fell. I'm sorry, in 722, Israel fell to the nation of Assyria some 13 years later. So we see the fulfillment of this prophecy worked out in the short term. Now, if you continue reading past verse 17, you're going to see that Assyria is going to turn on Judah Judah has taken a tiger by its tail. Its artificial savior has proved to be just that. It's proved to be false. It's proved to be fake. Ahaz had trusted a fox to guard the hen house, and it would not be good. Let's think about how these truths that God sent his son to save and to rescue, how this should work itself out in our lives. First, recognize that Jesus is proof of God's absolute faithfulness. He's proof of God's absolute faithfulness. As I said before, this prophecy is made some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, some would say, well, wait a minute. What if the people who wrote Isaiah wrote Isaiah after the time of Jesus and and maybe they just kind of put all that in? Well, that can't work because the earliest copy of the book of Isaiah that we have is dated to 125 B.C. That's 125 years before Jesus came. Again, this prophecy was 735 B.C., some 700 years. But the earliest copy of the book of Isaiah we have is 125 years before the time of his birth. Do you see how incredible it is that God could give a prophecy like this? And 125 years later, it would come to be. If you're going to reject Christianity, you're going to have to deal with the fulfilled prophecies that are out there. 
They're hard to dismiss. When you, when you begin to look at each of them one by one, this is just a single one. When you, when you begin to look at each one by one, it becomes difficult to just dismiss this whole thing called Christianity. It, it, it's a challenge to do. There are good reasons to believe in the truthfulness of the gospel message and the truthfulness of Christianity. Fulfilled prophecy is one of them. What we see here is that Jesus is proof that God keeps his promises. He's proof that God is faithful. I can remember back in junior high. I'm sure junior high kids don't do this today, so junior highers don't be mad at me for saying this, but back when I was in junior high, all the guys, we always talked so big, you know, like, man, I can do this, I can do that, and I can, you know, man, I can bench press 185 pounds, I can, and then what do you say to the kid who says, well, if you say you can bench press 185, back it up, buddy. Let's go to the, let's go to the field house. Let's see you do this. We, we say, are you going to back it up? And what we see here in Isaiah is that God backs it up. God says, I'm going to send one who will come, and he'll be a, a perfect one to rescue and to save. And God does just that. For this reason, we can trust God. He's faithful to keep his promises. Number two, trust God in all circumstances, in all circumstances, as he is the God who is with you. His name reminds us, Emmanuel, that God is with his people. Think about this. Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He, he was in heaven where everything's right and good. And he came to this earth as a little baby. He came to a world that's broken and messed up and sinful. Why would he do that? Because of an amazing love. Because of a, a crazy, undying love. That's the kind of love that, that God displayed in sending his son, his son to be God with us, to come here and be among us. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Ahaz, King Ahaz of Judah, felt backed into a corner. He had enemies looming virtually on, on every side. And he was sure that if he didn't do something to deal with the, the, the threats that were so real that he and his nation were going to be wiped out. So what did he do? He called on the king of Assyria. He called on an artificial savior. He didn't trust God. He, he didn't keep holding on to God. Now, friend, what are you facing? What is it that, that, that feels like a threat in your life that's pushing against you, that, that's giving you stress and grief? Listen, if you're a child of God, you can trust him. You can count on him. He'll come, he'll come through for you. He'll take care of you. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with you. He's with you. Are you trusting God in all of your circumstances? Number three, artificial saviors give the illusion of well-being, but they will not save. They give the illusion. Artificial saviors give the illusion of well-being, but they will not save Ahaz trusted in an artificial savior, a pseudo-savior. That's where he found his security and his well-being, but it did not save. And neither will the artificial saviors that we develop and come up with in our own lives. What are some of the artificial saviors that, that we have today? One of them is alcohol. Well, I, I, just, I just need a drink. I just need a drink. Some of you are destroying your lives with alcohol. Some of you are destroying your families with alcohol. It's an artificial savior. It will not save. It can't rescue. It can't fix a sin-sick heart. 
He can't do that. Others are, 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 are into drugs and, and plant around with drugs and some into prescription drugs, beginning to, to abuse those and, and beginning to try to find some relief, some solace, some help. It's an artificial savior. It's a pseudo-savior. He'll never save you. Instead, it will, like King Ahaz, put a noose around your neck. And slowly it'll get tighter and tighter and tighter. And what about porn? There are so many today who are addicted to porn, who are looking at that and finding some sense of fulfillment, some sense of relief and satisfaction in this. It's an artificial savior. It just, it just makes you want more and more and more. It's not going to save. It destroys, it hurts, it harms. And still some will choose things that are good to try to be a savior. Some will choose things like, like a relationship. Well, I'm going I'm to build this relationship. I'm going to start dating her. I'm going to start dating him. Or, and I'm going to find life here. Or, or my spouse is going to be the one who sort of saves me and rescues me. Listen, friends, people are a blessing. And having relationships with people are good. But a person can never be your savior. They can never be your savior. A person can help you, can encourage you, can love you. But only God can be your savior. And when we try to put the weight of, of saving our sin-sick souls upon a person... It's a weight too heavy to bear. They can't hold up. Relationships weren't meant for that. The only cure for a sin-sick soul is the true Savior, not an artificial Savior. What are some other things that that we pursue? Well, sometimes we pursue illicit illicit relationships, relationships that are inappropriate, that are wrong, that, that, that shouldn't be pursued. Friends, that feels good for a while, but it's a noose around your neck. It's a noose around your neck. You're, you're, you're hanging yourself. It's, it's an artificial savior. It can't rescue. What are some other ways? We, sometimes we, we look to success. Man, if I can just achieve this and reach that goal, I'm going to do this. And those can be great things. But when that's what your life is about, when that's what you're pursuing and that's, that's, what, you're, that's what you're chasing after, friend, only God, only God can meet the deepest need of your heart. You're going to find one day, for a while that may feel good, but one day you're going to find it's never enough. It's never enough. And you find yourself empty and wanting more. The same thing with wealth and with money. Oh, I can get a little bit more and a little bit more. And I can put more in the bank and more in the bank and invest more and have more. Friend, wealth can be a blessing. And if you've been granted the gift of wealth, praise the Lord, and hopefully you use that wealth to bless others and to further the kingdom and the gospel. We're grateful for those who do. But if we're chasing after money... It's a pseudo-savior. It can't get us, it can't get our hearts right. It can't fix our hearts. Sometimes it's hobbies. Man, I'm in this hobby and I love it and I'm pouring my life into it. Sometimes the, the, the hobby is sports. I love this. I'm doing this. It's awesome. We're into this. It's great. And that, all those things can be good. They can just encourage us and kind of give us some relaxation and things like that. But when a hobby or when sports or something becomes what we're pouring our life into, you know, we're, we're so committed to it that we, we take everything else that's important in our lives and we start moving it. Man, I'm going to move this stuff over because I love this. I love it so much. Well, eventually, friend, you're going to find there's an emptiness there because those things were never meant to be your Savior. They were meant to be a blessing that we enjoy from God, but never meant to be a Savior for a sin-sick heart only the one true Savior can be that. Sometimes we, we, we seek jobs. I mean, if I can get this job, I'm going to rise in my career. I'm going to do this. It's going to be so good. But it can't cure a sin-sick heart, friend. It can't. Sometimes we can even take our families and turn our families 
into something like this. Like, like we, we love our family, we're poor, which is a good thing, and it's God-honoring to love your family. But you can make your family like a god or an idol in your life where, where man, I'm, man, my family, that's what my life's about. But friend, family's meant to be a tool for instructing children to know the, to know the Lord Jesus and be able to pass that on to their children. It's supposed to be a, a tool by which the gospel's passed on and kids are nurtured up to grow and love Jesus. It's not meant to be the end. And when that becomes our savior, when that becomes what our life's about, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. You're chasing the wrong thing. A good thing, but it can't be an ultimate thing. So some of these things that I've mentioned are bad and some of them are clearly good, but all of them can become pseudo-saviors in our lives. They can become artificial saviors. None of them can save. None of them can. They provide an illusion of being okay. They provide an illusion of well-being, but they will not. No, they cannot save. A sad and yet interesting study recently showed that the death rates among, among all age groups and races and ethnicities, the death rates were falling for every group but one. And that one age group in which death rates were rising was middle-aged whites. The, the research... Uh, the researchers dug deeper into the data, and this is what they found. The reason for rising death rates among middle-aged white wasn't because of some uh, heart disease or diabetes or, or something like that. The reason was because there was an increase of alcoholism. There was an increase of, of drug use and opioid use. And for that reason, demographically across our nation, think about that for a moment, across our whole country, the death rates for middle-aged whites is rising. Why? Because we looked for pseudo-saviors, artificial saviors that feel good for a while, but in the end, they leave us empty. They leave us hungry. This tragedy, this kind of tragedy tells us what God's Word has already made clear these artificial saviors can soothe for a while. For a while, Ahaz felt secure. He had an alliance with the king of Assyria. But eventually, Judah came at Ahaz with a vengeance. And so our artificial saviors will eventually destroy us or they'll eventually leave us empty, wondering, what did I pour my life into? Are you trusting in artificial saviors? Fourth, place your faith in Christ. Place your faith in Christ. God gave Ahaz this chance to trust him, to step out in faith and to believe him. It was a turning point in Ahaz's life. And his rejection of God at this time would be devastating. You see, friend, when God calls you, trust me, believe me, and you keep saying no, and you keep saying no, and you keep saying no, eventually your heart hardens. And eventually there'll be a day that you just can't say yes. Your heart will have become so hard that you cannot find life in Christ. Turn to him in faith today. Call out to him today. Imagine that you were in San Antonio down at the Tower of the Americas and you wanted to go up to the top, look around and, and see the city of San Antonio. So you, you push that button on the elevator. You're waiting, waiting, waiting. When that, when's that thing gonna get here? You know, when you push a button on the elevator like... 10 seconds seems like 10 minutes. Have you noticed that? And so you wait. It finally gets there. You hear the ding, ding. The door opens. You're standing there staring. The door is wide open. 
If you don't step into the elevator, what's going to happen? That door's going to close, and it's going to leave. And that's exactly what some of you are doing when it comes to putting your faith in Christ. Today, the door's open, wide open. The elevator is dinging. The question is, are you going to step in? Are you going to say to God, you know what, today I'm going to quit trying to do things my own way and I'm going to put my faith in you and I'm going to trust you. I'm walking in. God, I'm in. I'm I'm going to step in. I'm, I'm going to put my faith in you. Today the door is open. It was open for Ahaz as well. What will you do? We saw what Ahaz did. We saw devastating consequences. What will you do? And I plead with you, go in. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. I recently read the story of a police officer who was called out to investigate a a robbery. And in investigating the robbery, he walked behind the store and he found there a woman who was about to shoot up with heroin. This lady was very pregnant. And and he said to her, listen, you're going to kill your baby. You're going to kill your baby. And and so uh, the officer, Ryan Hollett, said that at this moment, his heart just sank. His heart just sank, and and he was so sad. And he said, I just felt an impression from God that I ought to tell her, I'll adopt that baby. Don't do this. I'll adopt the baby. I'll take care of your baby. And and he said at that moment, he he told the woman that, and, and she said, I've been wanting someone who would take this baby. And the officer said that he gets so tired of seeing situations that he can't fix, that he can't do something about terrible situations. But he said, at this moment, I knew I could do something about this. I could, I could help with this. And after that conversation, the officer did what he had better do. He got in a squad car and he drove straight to his wife, right? <laughs> to tell his wife what they had just agreed to do. <laughs> Ladies, Nothing like this has ever happened to you. So when you're frustrated with your husband, just remember, he's not done this, right? So, um, but because of previous conversations this man had had with his bride, he knew what her heart would be. He knew that his wife would say, yes, we'll take the baby. He knew that. They, they had four kids. The youngest one was 10 months. They had planned to adopt, but they had planned to adopt a little later. Well, three weeks later, not a lot later, three weeks later, they had a baby. And they took that little baby and they named her Hope. They named that sweet baby girl Hope. Now, Hope is battling through the effects of neonatal abstinence syndrome because of the drug use that her her mother had. It'll cause a lot of challenges and difficulties in her life in the days ahead. But do you see that officer rescued that sweet baby girl? Now, God did something like that. It worked a little different. But he sent his baby He sent his baby to come for your rescue, to come and rescue you, to come and save you. And what will you say to him today? Do you see this little baby Hope was being adopted into a family? Do you see that's exactly what God is offering you today, the opportunity to be adopted into his family, to have a relationship with him, to know him, to be treasured eternally? That's what God is offering. He's offering you hope. He's offering you hope, true hope, eternal hope. You see, God isn't a God who rules from afar. He is God with us. He's with us. He's a God who saves, a God who adopts, a God who heals. God 
sent his son to save. So believers, those of you here who know Jesus, are you relying on God and trusting him in the midst of hard situations, in the midst of a heartbreak? Are you, are you holding on to him? Or are you chasing saviors that are going to inevitably let you down? Today, call out to him and ask him to give you the faith to keep trusting in the face of the hard, in the face of the broken, and ask him to give you the faith to want to know him more and to love him more. And for those of you who are here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, there's never been that turning point in your life, I want to say to you, God has come. He sent a son that you might be saved. He offers any who will call out to him in faith to save Will you place your life in his hands? Will you call out to him? Will you let him adopt you? Become one of his children? That baby, Jesus, that baby, Emmanuel, God with us, came for this reason, to save our sin-sick hearts. The elevator door's open. Will you call out to him?